Good morning. Good morning. I feel like there should be somebody at the other podium. Kara, I think I have your Big Bird. He, Big Bird stowed away with us. Anybody? <laughs> Come get him. There you go. There you go. Come, uh, last, I don't know if anybody caught Saturday Night Live last night. Big Bird was, in fact, a guest on Weekend Update. It was, it was great. And uh, I was reminded uh, of the, uh, the, the, the classic... Uh, Saturday Night Live uh, bit, The Deep Thoughts with Jack Handy. You guys remember that one? What, one of my favorites there is the one where, where he says, sometimes if a child asks me while it's, why it's raining, I'll say, well, that's because God is crying. And if they ask, why is God crying? I say, probably because of something you did. And however meteorologically inaccurate that is, there is some good theology behind it. One of the great disappointments of my ministry, indeed my life, was that this summer the derecho canceled our planned recitation of Jonathan Edwards' great sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. As you may recall, at the beginning of the summer, we took a little break from Romans before plunging into the Song of Solomon. And we, we read a few classic sermons from the colonial era. And because of weather, we had to cancel church that one. So, well, it wasn't sort of because of weather. It was because of what the weather did, namely dropping uh, timber in our uh, parking lot and making it unsafe to go up the road. But uh, because of that, we'll have to wait another six years until we can read Jonathan Edwards' classic sermon on the anniversary of its delivery on July 7th. So you can look forward to that in 2018. <clears throat> I know I am. But it's, I was looking at the passage this week. I kept going back to the sermon that he preached in Enfield that day. Here's just a little bit of what he says. This is... Jonathan Edwards, probably the greatest theologian that America has produced. So that thus it is, Edwards said, that natural men, that is people who are not in Christ, are held in the hand of God over the pit of hell. They have deserved the fiery pit and are already sentenced to it. God is dreadfully provoked. His anger is as great towards them as to those that are actually suffering the executions of the fierceness of his wrath in hell. And they have done nothing in the least to appease or abate that anger. Neither is God in the least bound by any promise to hold them up one moment. The devil is waiting for them. Hell is gaping for them. The flames gather and flash about them and would fain lay hold on them swallow them up. The fire pent up in their own hearts is struggling to break out. 
And they have no interest in any mediator. There are no means within reach that can be any security to them. In short, they have no refuge, nothing to take hold of. All that preserves them every moment is the mere arbitrary will and uncovenanted, unobligated forbearance of an incensed God. The wrath of God, he goes on to say, is like great waters that are damned for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course. When once it is let loose, tis true, that judgment against your evil works has not been executed here too. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld, but your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing, and you are every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are continually rising and waxing more and more mighty, and there is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back that are unwilling to be stopped and press hard to go forward. If God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open, and the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. And if your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, yea, 10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutiest, stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell, it would be nothing to withstand or endure it. The bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Oh, sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. Tis a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of that God whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it, ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder, and you have no interest in any mediator and nothing to lay hold of to save yourself, nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing that you have ever done, nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. Well, that's cheerful. Is God really that pissed off? I think He is. Paul says here in our passage, chapter 5, well, let's back up. We'll start with last week's chapter 5, starting in verse 6 of Romans. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. 
But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through it? Through Him. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more? Being reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? And not only this, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Look at these words that Paul uses to describe us. We were powerless, just like Edwards said. We were powerless. There's nothing we can do. Nothing we have done to induce God to spare us one moment. Paul says Christ died for the ungodly, for sinners. Verse 10, he says that we were God's enemies. I love the Greek word there is echthros. Sounds like a baseball player spitting. Have you ever noticed, you've been watching a lot of baseball lately? Baseball players are spitting like all the time when they're playing, when they're in the dugout, when they're doing interviews, they just spit. But echthros is an enemy in Greek. We are God's echthroi, his enemies, and therefore deserving of his wrath. Why is God so angry. Let's look all the way back in Genesis. Chapter 3. The story of the fall. Tempted by the serpent, Adam and Eve ate of the tree they had been commanded not to eat of. And because of this, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, which is an awesome scene in the Gibson's Passion movie. And you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to the dust you will return. What we have here is a story of Shalom busted up completely. God created the world good. He created it with peace and harmony. He created everything to go well together, and then we screwed it up. We human beings sinned. 
and made the whole thing unravel. And because of that, that which was at peace, that which was in a state of harmony, of God's shalom, is completely and utterly ruined. The peace with creation that we had when God placed Adam in the the garden to work it, to tend it, to take care of it, is now shattered. By the sweat of his brow, he will wrestle a bare living out of the ground until ultimately he grinds down into it where he came from. Those animals that at one point Adam named are now some of them animals he will be defending himself against and others, those that will be his victims. This harmony, this relationship between the man and the woman, the person of whom Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she will be named woman for she was taken out of man. He now gives her another name in verse 20, Chava, Eve, that is living, sort of an ironic appellation, strange name to give her since God has just told him how hard his life is going to be, what a tough living he's going to have for the rest of his days. And he's like, great, I'm going to give you a new name. You're not going to be woman anymore. You're not going to be Isha. Now you're Chava. I'm going to be reminded every time I see you, every time I speak your name of just how hard life is. And Adam feels like it's her fault and she feels like it's Adam's fault. And there is hostility between them. The harmony in their relationship is broken. And we see the next two people that come on the scene. One of them kills the other one. Shalom, the harmony with creation is broken. The harmony with other human beings is broken. Obviously, this means a great deal of internal anguish for both of them. They're no longer at peace with themselves. Their own consciences accuse them constantly reminding them of what they have done to mess this up. And of course, they are now no longer at peace with the God who set all of this up. And it's not just because they have disobeyed God. They have. But it's also because He has made all of these things. He's made the creation. He has made these people. He loves them deeply, and by their sin, they have hurt something that he loves. I remember when I was a kid, I had a lemonade stand, and then I decided to branch out. Decided one day it would be a good idea for me to also sell gum at my lemonade stand. This ended up not, incidentally, being a particularly shrewd business move. Uh, but some of the neighborhood kids decided they wanted to pick on me, and they would—they were coming by, and one would distract me, and the other would snatch some of the gum, and I was very upset about this. I remember my father, when hearing what had happened, went down the street and just gave it to these kids. He found them all gathered together, big wads of gum in their mouth, and he chewed them out, made them come and give me back well, not the gum, because they had already eaten that. So. 
They didn't pay me for it. But I saw a side of him that I did not often see. I saw a side of somebody who was deeply offended, grieved that somebody he loved had been harmed, and he wanted to make it right. You remember last week when Todd Mangum showed us that picture of the lynching tree. How can a God who made the people who were abused and killed just go, oh, that's okay. You know, everybody's got their issues. No, he loves the people who are victimized by other people. He said of Abel's blood after Cain killed him, his blood cries out to me from the ground, and God is not deaf to the cries of those who are victimized, including ourselves. Even when we think something is a victimless crime, even when we think we're the only ones hurt by some sin we commit, the truth is God loves us and He's mad at us for hurting ourselves because He loves us. David says in Psalm 51, remember this, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so you are right in your verdict, and justified when you judge. David knew full well that he had, in fact, sinned against some other people, like the woman with whom he committed adultery, like her husband with whom he committed adultery, with whose wife he committed adultery, and whom he then delivered over to death. But he realizes that at the root Sin is a violation against God. Look at the cover of your bulletin for a moment. Just let's see how this plays out in, in real life when you see these kinds of situations. This is a, obviously a bald example, but, but let's think about how, how is Shalom busted up in this kind of a situation? Right? You've got all these kids playing on the pipe, and the big sign says, do not climb on the pipe. Right? Presumably that's there for some, there's probably something being taken from one place to another that shouldn't be in the water. You play in the pipe, you may break it. That's going to harm creation. You look at the possible harm to other kids if you fall off the pipe or if you hurt somebody. That messes up the relationships we have with one another. Think about the seared conscience of a kid who walks by that sign telling him not to do that and then jumps up on it and does it anyway. Maybe the first time they feel a little twinge of guilt or maybe a sense of excitement that they're doing something transgressive. But then eventually it just becomes routine. Eventually they maybe don't even see it. Or if they do, they you know, give it a little whack as they get up on the pipe saying, ah. But what happens when the guy who put that sign up comes and sees this scene? Probably like the villain in a Scooby-Doo show, he's going to say, it would have been fine if it weren't for you kids. But it's, it's a thumb in the eye. It's an offense. It's an affront. 
Many of us have had the experience as we see our children grow up of what one person described to me as the terrible twos transitioning into the FU3s, where children not only say no, but they do so deliberately and with great relish, and they take great pleasure in transgressing the commands that have been given them because they can and because they want to. And this does justly provoke the wrath of parents, not just because you know kids are going to be hurt or because they're not growing up the way they ought to, because it really is a thumb in your eye, isn't it? And I think all these reasons together are why God is so angry, wherefore He is wroth. We have busted up Shalom, peace that he has designed. We have harmed his creation, especially his precious human beings, others and ourselves, and we have offended him directly. And because of that, we are subject to wrath. Because of that, the natural man the man who is not in Christ, is in fact held in the hand of God and indeed an angry God restrained only by the forbearance of an incensed deity from the fierce execution of His wrath. Which is why the news that Paul has to give us in this passage is so good when he says, since now we have been justified by Christ's blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him if while we were God's enemies we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son? How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? Not only this, we can even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received that reconciliation. See, Paul is saying we will be saved. That's a declaration of what's going to happen to us in the future. We will be saved because we are now justified by Christ's blood. We are now made right, or at least righteous in God's sight. We are now in the beginning of a process of rectification We are now reconciled to God. And what that means, and this is so important, and whatever you hear this morning, I want you to make sure you hear this. What that means is that all of us who are in Christ have no reason whatsoever to fear the wrath of God. When Edwards delivered this sermon, he was delivering it to a congregation of people, but he was specifically aiming it at those in the congregation who were not in Christ, who had not come to Him in faith, who were in danger, were genuinely and legitimately in danger of suffering the wrath of God. But to everybody who is in Christ, we have no reason to fear God's wrath against us. We may fear it against those we love. We may fear it against those we don't like that much. Probably we fear that a little less. We need to work on that. 
But we, because we are now justified by Christ's blood, because we are reconciled to God, therefore, we have no fear of God's wrath. If we just go around not worrying about God's wrath without realizing how pure that wrath is and how justly deserving of it we would be, I don't think we get it. We don't get how big a deal it is for us to be justified, for us to know that we will be saved from His wrath, for us to be reconciled to God unless we realize just how desperately we need to be saved, just how righteous God's wrath is and how astonishing it is that we would be made righteous despite all we have done to offend a holy God. And unless we realize just how badly we have busted up the shalom that God designed and instituted that we messed up until we realize just how unreconciled we are. We don't properly see what a big deal it is for us to be reconciled to God, first of all, but through the Holy Spirit to begin the process of reconciliation to one another, to our own consciences, to the world around us. Where we begin to recapture that shalom that one day we will know in full. We will be saved because we are now justified, because we are now reconciled. Those of us who can say this should never take that lightly. Those of us who cannot say this should pay heed to the warnings that God gives in His Holy Word. Let us pray. Lord God, with David we say, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, blessed are they, whose sins the Lord will never count against them. We thank You for the rich mercy that You have poured out upon us We thank you for the justification we have through your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the reconciliation with you that is ours. For the fact that being by nature objects of your wrath, by your grace we are able to come to you, to know personally your great love. We pray that we would never for a moment take that lightly, that we would never be unaware of how unworthy we are of the mercy that you so graciously shower on us, but that we would at the same time never be unaware of how desperately those who do not know you are in need of that mercy. We pray that our encounter with your word this morning would lead in us to a holy fear and deep gratitude, proper worship of a just 
Almighty God. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ who saves us. Amen.